I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is John Coyle. John is a design thinking and innovation expert. He's an Olympic silver medalist, a keynote speaker, author, professor, and an NBC analyst. John, thank you so much for joining me. Tell us about the most recent chili pepper that you've been cultivating. (laughs) Great question, Matthew. (laughs) I am obsessed with capsation, and my favorite, while it is not the world record holder anymore, is the Trinidad Maruga scorpion pepper. It's been recently beaten by the Carolina Reaper, but I find the flavor in the Reaper is missing. It's just mostly heat. Uh, the Maruga scorpion, that's the way to go. By cultivating these, what, you're, you're getting the seeds and you're growing them, or, or what are you doing? Yeah, we, we've kept... Uh, sometimes up to three 30 by 30 plots, my friend Matt and I, and have been growing them for, I don't know, eight, eight, nine years. I have been on the road this year, so I am not growing. He's doing all the hard work and just sending me them. Cool. Have you ever heard of the Hatch Chili Pepper? I had Amelia Nirenberg with the New York Times on this podcast, episode 22, for those that haven't listened to it. And she wrote a wonderful piece on the Hatch Chili Pepper, how's the prize crop of New Mexico and how climate change is threatening to destroy the crop. Have you ever had those? Oh, I love them. I had them today, actually. We had okay. steak tostadas with hatch chilies on them uh, today. So great. Okay. Day. How would you describe the, the flavor? I've never had one. So the interesting thing about the hatch, and this also gets back to the maruga, is sure, pe- peppers can be hot, but a lot of, the, a lot of them are somewhat flavorless. Like the buccalochia or the ghost pepper, I find to be relatively flavorless. The hatch isn't that hot, maybe a little less depending than a jalapeno, but vastly more flavorful than jalapeno. And it can really infuse your foods with this amazing layer of tasty goodness. John, one of your other focuses and passions besides chili peppers is design thinking. To start off this conversation, can you break down design thinking a bit for us, like in its essence, in its core, what is design thinking? Sure. I'll, I'll break it down the five-step way. There's a seven-step way. There's a four-step <laughs> way. Uh, as David Kelly, the father of design thinking from Stanford says, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's an iterative process and more importantly, yeah. a mindset as well. Okay. So design thinking is a process and a mindset that was coined out of Stanford's product design program, which I was uh, fortunate to be in as an undergrad, that helps people solve complex problems in new ways. It's really an innovation process. And so 
and the process itself is, is fairly uh, perfunctory. Like, you know, first you have to accept that there's a problem. Now that sounds obvious, but we all know people that aren't willing to accept the problem right in front of them. You know, the ostrich with the head in the sand. Uh, the second step is to um, truly understand the problem, identify what it truly is. This sounds obvious as well, but lots of times we like to rush right to generating ideas without fully understanding the problem. Then this is a really the core of uh, design thinking or also called human-centered design is having empathy for the person or situation you're solving for. This hmm. often goes missing. Most often people that are solving problems tend to solve it from their lens. And so they're actually solving their problem, not yours. So being in the shoes of the person you're solving for. Then and only then after you accept, identify, and then empathize, can you generate ideas. Sans judgment, so generating lots of ideas, throwing out the bad ones. And then whatever ideas seem to have merit, you start to test, prototype, and repeat the whole process, always anchoring back to, do we truly understand the problem from the shoes of the person we're in? So that's the process. But I'll quickly touch on the mindset, yeah. which is a little bit difficult uh, and takes practice. So we tend as humans um, to get very anchored to a solution to a problem. And, Occam's razor suggests that the simplest solution to any given problem is probably the right one. And I would suggest to you that's true for simple problems, but not usually for complex ones. Mm. And so we sort of go wailing away, trying to solve a problem um, with the most immediate obvious answer. And then we get frustrated, we make no progress, and then we sort of want to throw up our hands. Uh, design thinking suggests a very detached, scientific uh, analytic approach to defining the problem. You, you look at it from multiple angles, you don't anchor to any particular solution at first. And so you're, you're detached and, and, and sort of looking at it from a distance. Then once you've identified some promising ideas, then and only then do you allow your human passion to come through and push mm -hmm. through the obstacles to trying out that particular solution. So the designer's mindset, this ability to be both detached and also uh, human passionate around a problem and bouncing back and forth every time you get thwarted to make sure you have that perspective. Well, that's the core as well. Following up on that piece you were speaking about with empathy, what helps uh, build empathy? What helps you know, the person that's trying to solve the problem, see it from the other person's perspective and really see what the other person is, is going through. What helps build empathy? Yeah, you know, the design thinking program will suggest to you that uh, deep observation is uh, one of the best tests. Oftentimes, quantitative or qualitative research doesn't get you into the below the layers of what's really going on. I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story of my first design thinking class, uh, the professor. Um, Dennis Boyle uh, showed up to the front of the room. He looked very professorial with his glasses and his mustache. <laughs> and then he started jumping up and down with his arms at his sides. And we're all like whispering to each other, like he's lost his mind. Like what is mm -hmm. going on? And then he bounced all the way around the room with his hands at his sides, then resumed his professorial stance and said, our first problem involves springs. If you don't know what it's like to be a spring, you can't solve for a spring. Mm. And that stuck with me for, you know, 25 plus years. And so being yeah. in the shoes, uh, really understanding the problem from the perspective of the person you're solving for or the situation. Now, thinking about design thinking, what do people oftentimes get wrong when they're sort of trying to go into this sort of mode of thinking, this way of approaching a problem? What do they don't always get right? Almost always. And I would, I would argue this is probably 95% of the time in boardrooms and hallways and mm -hmm. classrooms around the world. Right now, this is going completely off the rails. 
this idea that somebody offers up an idea and then somebody else judges it in the moment. Mm -hmm. So it looks a lot like, hey, why don't we do X? And somebody else in the room saying, we tried that before. Legal wouldn't let us. Marketing wouldn't market it. Sales wouldn't sell it. IT wouldn't build it. They're trying to spare that person um, from spinning their wheels. But what they're inadvertently doing is actually quashing their creative juices. It actually shuts down the prefrontal cortex, they emit cortisol and catecholamine. They actually effectively mm. get dumber and less creative. And this is going on all the time. And so the yes. core of the design thinking process is to separate the generation of ideas in time from the judgment. This is not hard to do. Mm. Uh, and this is, you know, when people say things like, let's parking lot that, oh, let's create a list. Let's, <laughs> you know, create a space for this ideas, ideas to emerge before we judge them. You're pretty fine with being having your ideas judged when you have 10 of them on the board. You're not so good when the boss shoots you down after the first time you raise your hand. Interesting. So, so how do we fight against that? If you have the capacity in the room, which isn't always the case, if you're you know, several levels down, you might not be able to do this. But you've got, if you've got some peer level um, support, say something. So when the boss or the people that are trying to jump right to an idea without actually generating a, a whole boatload of ideas, start to hit the floor, you can say something like, hey, can we just take a moment, a couple minutes, to see if there's any other ideas in the room? The other thing that you're doing is giving the introverts a shot because they mm -hmm. won't say anything when it's the tyranny of the extroverts. And they yeah. often have the best ideas because they've been actually thinking about it longer than talking <laughs> out loud. Um, so creating that space, saying something like, okay. hey, can we take a moment? Okay, can we create a, a parking lot for these ideas? Can we separate the judgment of the, these ideas from their creation? And if you can do that, I used to always sit near the whiteboard to do that. I'd say, hang on, let me draw a box here. Let me just grab a few of these. And that starts to create that partition that keeps the room from being shut down. Two thoughts are coming to my head. One is, okay, John, we don't have time for that. We don't have time right. to, to deal with all these ideas. You know, Matt, you know, I'm talking about myself in, in some weird third person right there. But, uh, you know, Matt has an idea for a new summer school. Okay, great. No, nah, that's not going to work. Move on. Who else? You know, we don't have time for that. What would you say to that? I would say there's really two facets to that question that, that it becomes a judgment call. Hmm. Sometimes as the leader you are up against it when it comes to time, yeah. resources, budget, what have you. And it is your job actually to say, listen team, given the data we have, the knowledge that I possess, what I've heard so far, this is the direction we're moving. And then there's the idea. And you own it and they're gonna be fine with that. In fact, they'd, they'd think you were derelict of duty if you always said, hey, what, you, what should we do, right? Like it is your job to take the lead and storm a new path on occasion. But if you do that every time, if you never give the team a voice, we never actually spend time gathering up ideas slowly, but surely there's this thing that happens over and over again. It's so fascinating to me. You start to quash the ideas of the people in the room. They stop yeah. raising them. So they don't even yeah. bring them anymore. And then they do this thing. They quit. So people mm. join companies and leave managers. The reason they leave managers, number one reason by far is my boss is not open to my ideas. And another thing you're saying, when you're talking about the parking lot, what I envision is sort of my experience with the parking lot is where people put ideas up on the parking lot and, and you feel good when you put it up there and then it remains there and then it gets erased and <laughs> gets right. forgotten about. What, right. What's that about? Well, that's a real danger too. If you're <laughs> going to open up a parking lot, if you're going to actually canvas people for their ideas, you can't just erase it. 
Now, the very minimal step is to have somebody in the room gather them and maybe categorize and send them back out for further review. That's the very minimal. Okay. Better case is that you say, hey, uh, I think three of these have some real merit. Um, let's get back together, prioritize, and maybe assign a team to get working. So getting action on one item out of 100 still feels like progress to the people in the room. Even if it wasn't their idea, they were a part of the process and people support that which they create. It also sounds like what you're saying, it's not always about the end product, but it's also about the process. So by allowing this process to go forward, it allows the creative processes in our mind to, to develop. It allows the energy to sort of grow. So what's the benefit of that process versus just the end product? Can you speak to that? Absolutely. And you, you've probably experienced this. I have. I've sat in cubicles. I've sat in the corner office. Mm -hmm. I've played both sides of this, sometimes well, sometimes poorly. Uh, my most senior level job is I was basically third in command in a, a consulting firm. And it was a big job and it was a big title and I was nervous about it. And <laughs> my third day there or so, I went to the CEO with what in hindsight was a very terrible idea. Very terrible. Not well thought through, didn't make any actual sense given the strategy of the company and the positioning. And, and he could have easily shot me down, like yeah. well within his rights. And he just smiled. And I'm, these are the bosses you love, right? <laughs> he smiled and he said, you know, that's interesting, John. Have you, have you talked it through with any of your um, other peers or people in, in the company, like maybe somebody in marketing? I was like, no, that's a good idea. I'll go do that. So I go talk to a coworker and he's like, God, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. You please tell me you didn't tell that to Mike. And I was like, oh, I already did. He's like, what did he say? I, I, he, he told me to talk to you. He's like, yeah, thank God. No, don't ever bring that idea up again. So, but the thing is that what was established there was trust mm -hmm. that if I did bring an idea to Mike, he wouldn't immediately strike it down even if it was bad. And then if I eventually brought some good ones, which eventually did, he would be open to those as well. And that's a really powerful catalyst for creativity. So how have you seen creativity get shot down? So bring us into the, the room with Mike and yeah. show us a bad sort of reaction. So the bad reactions, and I've seen it over and over again. Uh, in fact, I'll give you a quick story about it. I was at a wireless company leading marketing. Uh, new to the company, I came in and I noticed that the other big players in the wireless world were doing free phone promotions. And so I asked the question immediately, like my first day, why aren't we doing a free phone promotion? And uh, my boss was like, well, we've tried that. Legal won't let us. We've got some sort of barriers based on the way we're set up as a company and we can't do it. We'd have to pay taxes on it. So I asked a couple more times just to make sure, but I got the same consistent answer. So then I hired people and they came in and they said, hey, why don't we do a free phone promotion? And I said, <laughs> the exact same answer. Right. And this went on for years, uh, <laughs> three years. Now, one of the things that's true about this, this maxim that people use all the time, we've tried that before at work. Yeah. I've asked people, when was that? And they'll say things like, mm, that was back in 93. <laughs> like, that's 28 years ago. <laughs> that is, the world has changed. There might be a new way to do this. So I sort of learned about this, you know, sort of evolved my innovation uh, leadership practices. And I had a new employee start and his name was Paul. And he, you know, first day, same question. Why don't we do a free phone promotion? And I was just about to tell him the pat answer. And then I said, you know, we've had barriers with legal and, uh, and sales on this in the past. Have you talked to anybody over in legal? Hmm. He's like, no, I, I haven't. But I, you know, I've been meaning to connect with this guy, so-and-so. 
So I, you know, I'm fully expecting him to come back and say, oh, it's impossible. And he's back in my office a week later. He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we figured out a way to do it. There's a new guy in legal and he knows about this loophole. And sure enough, uh, three weeks later, we got the CFO to sign off on the company's first free phone promotion in its history. All because <laughs> new guys that weren't stuck in the status quo bothered to ask mm. different questions. That's a wonderful story. And I also like the way that you applied design thinking, not just, you know, in theory, not and none of the, what we're talking right now, I, I feel like is, is totally theory. But you also bring it practical to your own life. So let's do that for a moment. Bring yeah, us in sure. to an example in your own life, right? Let's let's take design thinking and let's talk about and demonstrate how it works in, in our own life, not just in a boardroom, not just in you know a cellular company, but in everyday life. For me, the biggest way is to re-examine or examine in depth common question answer pairs that we all take for granted. Hmm. So I'll give you two. Uh, one that is embedded in us, operant condition to it, into us since youth is, you know, how do I fix my weaknesses? Got to fix my weaknesses. Yeah. Fix your weaknesses. You're all everybody's performance review is all a list of weaknesses to fix. Yeah. And, you know, under scrutiny, that may not be the best challenge. The better challenge, I would argue, is if you're over 25. If you're over 25 and still trying to fix your weaknesses, that ship has sailed. But let's say you're over 25. <laughs> Um, then the better question is how do I design for my strengths? Be that as an individual, as a team, as a company, mm. how do you double down on the things you do the very best? So that's one reframe. Yeah. My biggest passion, as you probably know, is, is a reframe around this, this commonly accepted thing that makes me absolutely crazy, which is each summer seems a little shorter than the last, the older we get. Mm -hmm. True. And I was like, not okay with this. I, this started happening to me in my late 20s, early 30s. And I was like, yeah. we got to do something about this. And so by reexamining this, I reframed the question as to how do we slow, stop and reverse the perceived acceleration of time most adults feel and experience mm. the endless summers of our youth again? And I'm happy to share with you that I do know how to do that. Yeah, bring it. I'm sorry, was that a question? No, 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 no. I was just encouraging you to bring it on. Oh. <laughs> I'll give you the, the short version and if you'd like, you can interrogate it uh, further depth. But, you know, it's, it's a, it is a uh, cognitive bias. Our brains are very lazy. They are, um, you know, 5% of our mass and uh, more than a third of our caloric burn, almost half actually. So, because of that, the brain wants to be lazy. It wants to be latent. It wants to go dormant. When you're seven, you just can't because everything is new. You don't know how things work. Everything is a surprise. Everything is exciting or scary or both. And you're always having unique experiences. And so the brain is lit up like a bright light bulb 24-7, laying down tons of memories. And then you get older and you get more comfortable. And with the gauze of Advil, Paxil, air conditioning, uh, stayed routines and a complacent pace, the brain says, oh, nothing new here to write down. And so it just doesn't. And without that stack of memories, that is what creates your perception of your time, your history, and the you that you are. Without that stack of memories like you have as a seven-year-old, you simply won't exist. Like, hmm. you've ever gotten to the parking lot and didn't know how you got there? That's because your yeah. brain didn't write anything down. And I would argue you are no different than dead. Hmm. So we we got to trick the brain back into being brightly lit to writing lots and lots of deep recallable memories. And mm. there's, there's a number of ways to do that. Yeah. Give us a couple, give us a couple ways to do that. Yeah. The first is, uh, and I'll give you a metaphor for this. Think of time passing through your brain, 
Matthew, in my brain, like water through a garden hose, a fixed flow of water, in this case, through a garden hose. And when you squeeze the aperture of the exit of that water, what happens? Well, when you make that flow go through a smaller uh, aperture, it speeds up. That's why you put your thumb over the end and you can reach the far end of the lawn. Mm -hmm. uh, I think our brains are doing the same metaphorically to the flow of time. The older we get, the more they constrict the flow, causing time to speed up. Now, mm -hmm. for the aperture, let's use, uh, instead of base times height, let's use breadth of experience, so unique experiences, and depth of experience, which is the depth of emotional intensity of those experiences. Well, yeah. if you're eight, you got all kinds of new experiences every day. Everything's mm -hmm. exciting or scary or both. First win, first loss, first crush, first breakup. Uh, yeah. Eight-year-olds cry a lot. And yeah. uh, so their breadth uh, of unique experiences is wide open. Their depth of emotional reactions is wide open and time trickles through and summers last forever. Hmm. Fast forward to middle age, same job, same routine, same commute, same restaurant, same places for vacation, and all of these safety measures to make life super safe and comfortable. But the adage is true. Life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. And so time is accelerated by this closing of the apertures. Our experiences diminish. Our emotional uh, attachment to them to diminishes. And time, uh, uh, 10 years as a middle-aged person, feels like a summer as an adult. So what are some ways to you know, to freshen things up, right? Without, and I'm not saying that some people shouldn't do this, you know, you know, have a new job, move and all of those things, switch up the whole life. But how do we switch it up for the person that has a routine, has a job that they enjoy, but they feel like they're getting into that everyday sort of rut and they get to their job and they forget how they got there? To be fair, we can't be living on the edge all the time. Like that, <laughs> that doesn't work either. And we know, you know, you know a couple of people like that and they're ragged, right? Like they might be writing down a lot of memories, but they're not all good. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's a number of mechanisms, but one of the best ones that's built in for the people that use it, which is apparently only 60%, which boggles my mind is vacations. Hmm. So, you know, but not going to the same place on vacation. In fact, my advice okay. for vacation, most people don't like, but it absolutely fundamentally works is design fear and suffering in your vacation. So well, why would you do that? Well, here's the thing. We're wired as human beings to remember stories. We don't remember data very well. We don't remember facts, yeah. um, but we are wired to remember stories. And the thing about yeah. stories is they have a couple things in common. All stories have a plot. All plots have a crisis. Hmm. So if you want to remember a vacation that creates a before and after, you need a crisis because then you have a plot. If you don't have a plot, you don't have a story. If you don't have a story, you won't remember it. Therefore, it's just logic. You must design fear and suffering in your vacations. I can give you an mm. example if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah, I would love that. So my daughter, I got invited actually to do a talk down in Playa del Carmen. This would be now five years ago. And it was all first class, you know, like the Escalade to the five-star resort, all inclusive. And we could have sat by the pool and had cocktails and kitty cocktails, but instead I turned to her and I said, you know, she was 13 at the time, and I said, uh, you want to walk to town along the beach? And she's on to me, to be fair. And <laughs> she's like, well, how far is it? And I said, I don't know. And I really didn't. I thought it was going to be about an hour. So it's about four o'clock. We set out. The sun was starting to set. It was beautiful. We see starfish. Like, it was great. And then an hour in, she's like, are we almost there? And I said, I think so. And then we're now another hour in with no water, no food, and the sun drops into the ocean like it does down there, and suddenly it's done. Mm -hmm. And now the sand turns to, to uh, rocks and coral, and we're stubbing our toes in the dark. Our, both of our feet are bleeding. She starts <laughs> crying, but we don't want to go two and a half hours back, so we go another half hour, and then another half hour, and four hours in, 
bleeding, exhausted, hungry, and thirsty, we finally see the lights and smell the foods of uh, Fifth Avenue and Playa del Carmen. Mm. As we're getting onto the main thoroughfare, she says to me fiercely, this is going to be the best dinner of my life. <laughs> and it was. I mean, it could have been anything, but it was five years ago. I still know what we had. We had mm. squid stuffed with goat cheese with a lemon white wine butter sauce with a little bit of parsley and garlic. It was amazing. Five wow. years ago, like yesterday, because we had a story. Yeah, so switch things up for the vacation. Give us something that we can do in our daily life. So I agree with you. We should take vacations. And I like that idea of, of switching it up as well. Um, but give us something in the day to day. Well, the beauty of these kinds of events is you can also gift them to others. And it, hmm. it's, I'd say it's, it's kind of like a skill. It takes practice to keep your awareness open for the opportunities for uniqueness. And so I'll give an example from my business partner, Monica. This was uh, two and a half summers ago. There was going to be a, a meteor shower. I forget the name of it, uh, but one of the bigger ones. And it was a perfectly clear night, and she lives in a pretty rural area. So school night, she wakes up her two sons independently, about 20 minutes apart. Uh, they're in their teens, I think 13 and 15. Wakes them up, says, shh, doesn't say anything, grabs a blanket. They walk up the hill by their house, lay on their backs, watch these smoke trails and brilliant lights of these mm. meteors striking overhead for five, 10 minutes, brings the other son out, does the same thing. No words were said. There's a before and after that moment. Just truly mm. memorable. To be honest, I've struggled with time uh, throughout the pandemic, right? Yeah. For me, the transition from day to day began to blend together. And that blending, you know, had unhealthy consequences in, in reality. What have you learned you know, from your time throughout the pandemic and even even reflecting on, you know, on your thoughts with with the relationship with time. Yeah, this is where time and design thinking really, really worked in my favor. One of the things I've realized over the years is when you feel like you have no choices, all it means is you only have really hard, big ones. Yeah. And so, you know, COVID was going on and my <laughs> the two things I love to do is travel and visit friends. And guess what I couldn't do, right? Mm -hmm. And travel, and, and particularly internationally, but, and I was just miserable. I mean, yeah. each day was blending into the last yeah. March to April to May to June felt like mm -hmm. a couple of days. Yeah. And, you know, and I talk about this stuff and I'm like, I can't, you know, I talk about this and I can't even do it. And I was casting about and casting about, I'm like, there's gotta be something, there's gotta be something I can do. And nagging at the back of my mind was, you know, what if you sold everything? Like everything, every, you know, everything you own, all your furniture, all of your cars, your motorcycle, your bikes, except for a couple, and bought an RV and started driving around the country. You could hmm. socially distance outdoors, visit friends, and travel around, the two things you love to do. And so I eventually pulled the trigger and I sold everything I owned. It was very, very difficult to get rid of things yeah. so quickly. Um, but then life got amazing, like immediately went from a blur to every day was a new adventure, visiting a friend, visiting the Badlands, you know, parked at the Grand Canyon, uh, in Sedona, on the beach in Malibu for a week. It was just incredible. Mm. And every day uh, expanded and became longer and longer. And those, you know, four months on the road feel like 10 years. Yeah. So bring us in that design thinking uh, process, right? I'm just trying to make it, I'm just trying to flesh it out a little bit. So there's this pandemic, obviously, problem. And how did you come to the conclusion that this was the right decision? And then I also want to hit on this. 
how did you deal with, I did this and is it the right decision? Isn't right. it the second guessing uh, nature that we could have? Absolutely. There's a lot of that <laughs> going on. It's <laughs> rumination, like, right. Re, uh, refresh, repeat, look at it again, refresh. Repeat. Mm. I was, uh, I was really struggling because the easy, obvious answer, the Occam's razor answer was, Hey, girlfriend, let's both sell our places downsize to a smaller place, move in together and save money because I'm not making any money. Like as a public speaker, that was not happening. And that was the obvious answer. And, and that we were making decisions to do that. Both of us ended our leases. We were on the path to do what would have been a really pretty terrible, uh, transition to, to quarantine. But I kept having this nagging feeling and and with Mm. the experience I have in design thinking is wait, have I identified the right problem? I, have I accepted the wrong problem? Is there a different way to view this? Is there a way to frame this? And one of the best ways to, by the way, to reframe the most simplest solution is often we'll say, well, if I uh, don't sell my apartment and move into a smaller one with my girlfriend, then I won't have enough money to feed myself. That's the obvious framing, but the, the reframing, which is a, a mere flip is, well, what I want is, to not have to downsize and live in an apartment and go nowhere. Uh, and what I don't want is to run out of money. And so what the RV allowed was by selling a whole bunch of things that I didn't really need and I could buy again, I was able to buy the RV outright cash, have no rent, no mm. real utilities. The only thing I had to pay for was gas. And so we went from two you know, mortgage or condo payments to no payments at all during the six months where I really wasn't working much. Uh, and that was all we needed. So you're framing it as what I do want, as opposed to sort of what makes sense. Yeah. The sucker's choice argument, the setup that we hear over and over again, and whenever you yeah. hear it, you should know that this is an opportunity to innovate is if I do this good thing, then this bad thing will happen. Okay. Right. So if I stay in my apartment, we keep two apartments, then we won't have enough money for food. Okay. The reframe is, what I want is and what I don't want. So what I want is to keep my apartment or keep, uh, you know, my own living space. Uh, and what I don't want is to not be able to feed myself. One shuts down possibility. The other one creates possibility. Okay. I'm going to give you a scenario. Yeah. And you can, you can speak to it. This might be a personal scenario. So, uh, my kid's school might be shut down virtually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the foreseeable future where this has been a year. And the, the only way to get them into a different school is, is really to move. And we own a house. Mm-hmm. Um, so how should I approach that situation? The typical setup would be, well, if we don't move, then we can't get our kids into a school in this area. Yes. The reframe would be, well, what I want is to get my kids into a different school. And what I don't want is to have to move. Now, I don't know what that possibility might be. It might be renting a condo and another zip code and pretending that's your address. I don't know, but there, it starts to create some possibility yeah. for that to happen. Yeah, that's that's helpful. You also spoke a little bit ago about looking uh, at our weaknesses and our strengths a little bit different. Sometimes people spend their life trying to fix their weaknesses um, mm-hmm. instead of focusing on their strengths. And the way that you frame it is different. Can you describe that? Yeah, I think that's, if you're over 25, that's an incredible waste of time. We all have native strengths and we all have native weaknesses. And I'm not talking about skill gaps, just to be clear, like a new operating system, you get your new iPhone, you have to learn something. You, a skill gap, you just learn and move on. True yeah. weaknesses are sort of part of who we are. And the other thing that I, I do find fascinating is quite often 
strengths and weaknesses are really just facets of the same thing. So if you're detail oriented, you're probably a perfectionist. If you're calm, you're probably unemotional. If you're practical, you're probably critical. If you're creative, you're probably disorganized. If you're direct and <laughs> honest, you're probably blunt and rude. I mean, I could go on. <laughs> um, the cost of entry to having a strength is the associated weakness. And mm. what happens is we try to fix those weaknesses. And what we usually do is actually destroy the corresponding strength and don't get any better at it, or at least not much better. And I love this, you know, this phrase that I can't attribute, but what the world doesn't want from you is to get slightly better at what you're mediocre at. What the world wants from you is to get amazing at something you're already great at. So what do you do with your weaknesses? You design around them. If you like, yeah. I'll tell you a story from the Olympics. Yeah. So, and again, it's so programmed into us at all levels, sports, coaches, yeah. leaders, uh, teachers. Um, and it comes from a good place. Like kids will quit anything. And so it is important to teach kid, kids to not quit, to sort of never give up, never give in. But that same advice goes, I think, off the, the rails for adults. So here I am. I'm, I'm 21 years old. I'm at Stanford studying full-time in California with no coach and no training program. But I still managed to get 12th place in the world in the sport of speed skating. So by graduating and joining the team, the Olympic team full-time, I thought I could go from 12th to 6th to 1st in the two years I had to prepare for the next Olympics. And so that mm -hmm. was the plan. And I got there, and they put us through some assessments. And I didn't do very well on several of them. And so... They sat me down and I said, listen, John, you got a number of weaknesses here we need to fix. You have a low, a low aerobic motor. We've got to teach you to skate farther, faster. So we're going to have you do all kinds of intense uh, endurance work. And they were good people with good intentions. Sounded right to yeah. me. And so I embarked on a two-year journey of fixing my athletic weaknesses. And I went from 12th in the world to 34th in the world to not even making the team two years later, finishing 30th wow. in the same trials I'd won two years prior. And I was miserable. And Thoreau calls it a life of quiet desperation. I think that's yeah. what you get when you pursue your weaknesses full time. So then I get this, this, this window. There's this window that happens when you're willing to quit something, but you haven't yet. So I was, well, yeah. I was thinking about quitting. I was terrible. But I kept thinking, you know, I used to be good at this. And I used to train differently. I used to design, you know, I used to follow my old coach's advice, which was to race your strengths. I'm like, well, why don't I do that again? So I quit the team, not the sport. And I started training all on my own again. And I started thinking about my strengths, which were of anaerobic power. And I started skating a different technique that took advantage of my strengths. And one year to the day of not making the team, finishing many seconds off uh, first place in the first race, in my first race back in a sport where hundreds usually determine first from second, I broke the U.S. national record by five and a half seconds and the world oh, record wow. by over a second. Oh, my goodness. So that's what designing for your strengths can give you is breakthrough performance, not even small incremental improvements sometimes. Thinking a little bit more about your Olympic experience, you just shared a, a wonderful lesson with us, uh, a wonderful memory. What's another memory or two that has uh, stuck with you? I'll give you two. You know, designing for strengths isn't just important as individuals. It's really important in teams. Hmm. You know, we hire for diversity of experience, backgrounds, skills, and so forth, and then Quite often, we just make everybody do the same job the same way, especially yeah. if they have the same job title. And that, that's a huge waste of all that effort we've just put into the recruiting process. And it's better to divide your team up based on the core skills, cap capabilities, and talents of those individuals. I'll give you a quick example. We go to the Olympic Games. I'm the anchor skater in the, the team race, the relay, because I have the fastest lap time. So naturally, I should skate last, except 
the environment had changed. We were skating on figure skating ice because we were trading ice every other night with the figure skaters who like slow, soft ice. And as a large person for my sport of short track speed skating, I was struggling. So the night before the gold medal round, we sat down with the four members of the team and the coach to determine who would run the anchor leg and escape the anchor leg. And they're like, Coyle, it's not going to be you. And I already knew that. So I was okay with that. And they said, second fastest guy on the team, Andy, not you either. You're too big, too tall. You're struggling too. Randy, you're, you can skate on slush. So maybe it should be you. But <laughs> Eric, the lightest, slowest guy on the team, also with the best endurance, we ultimately chose him. Thank God we did because we were about to lose bronze medal position going into that final exchange. Eric comes out with a big smile on his face and skates his way into silver, almost to gold because we put the right guy in for the right job at the right time. Here's one more for you that I get to tell all over the world that I I just love is that, you know, I trained on my own for four years and had a really great run of it. And then uh, preparing for the next Olympics, I decided to rejoin the Olympic team, which was a huge disaster (laughs) on the same program as before. And, I ended up not even making the U.S. team when I was hoping to come back with a gold medal. And so after that, I had a hard divorce. I had nothing to do with the sport for more than 10 years or more than eight years. And then I got a call from NBC and they asked me to be the analyst for the upcoming Olympics in Torino. And I couldn't say no to that. So there I am back in the Olympics. And on the 16th of 17 days at the Winter Olympics, a parent pulled me aside and in about 20 seconds changed my entire life. And it's the only reason mm-hmm. we're talking now. So we're at dinner and it's the night before the gold medal round for the men's relay, my event. And he turns to me and he says, Hey, I just want you to know something. It's really important. I said, okay. He's like, I just want you to know that we wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for you. Hmm. And I said, I don't know what you mean. He's like, you won't remember. But 12 years ago, after you won your silver medal, you came to a little reception in Bay City, Michigan. I brought my son, Alex. He was 11 years old at the time. You put your medal around my son's neck. He'd never skated before in his life. The next day, he joined the Bay City Speed Skating Club. And tomorrow, he's skating in the gold medal final. And just like that, everything changed. And I started Mm. being more involved. And I started actually talking about it, which is, by the way, what I do for a living. (laughs) Told that story to more than 300,000 people around the world. And the lesson here is really twofold. Uh, when you build a platform from your strengths, people watch, they listen, they follow, it matters, and you might not ever know, or you might not find out for 12 years, but regardless, it's uh, incredibly impactful. With high-level competition like the Olympics, you know, like speed skating, what do you think separates, you know, the gold from the bronze or, or not making it? Because all of those people, all you know, they're the highest level athletes in the world. What separates, you know, the the different athletes in the Olympics? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Nobody's ever actually asked that for me. So uh, I'm happy to take a stab at it. What's really fascinating <laughs> about many sports, my sport included, is, you know, the, the difference between the gold medal and 10th place in the 2002 games yeah. in speed skating in the 500 meters, which was one of my favorite events, was 31 100s. <laughs> 10 people in the space of time that sounds like this. So 10 people in that space. That's crazy. But here's what's really interesting is by and large, those same 10 people come through in that order at each World Cup. There's a couple that switch, um, but not a lot, right? Probably seven mm. out of those 10 spots stay pretty consistent. Yeah. And so, you know, wondering about what it would have taken for the guy who lost by two one hundreds, because that was the difference between gold and silver, right? Like 
so tiny, so tiny. Yes. What subtle, small improvement. And I, you know, I think it comes down to a couple things. One, I have you, uh, put together a training program that is specifically slated to speak to your core capacities as an athlete. Hmm. One size fits all does not work. It does not work. And then the second is, are you constantly iterating and trying, um, small, uh, nuanced differences to see if it can make a difference. Now in my case, because of the big switch I made around skating a fundamentally different technique and track that led to massive, uh, improvements, but you know, you can't do that every year, right? Nobody's yeah. going to expect a sport to get five seconds faster every year. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So small improvements can make a huge deal. So having that grit and discipline to keep focusing on small improvements, so I'd say is the other piece. John, I wanted to get your insight a little bit into the K-12, you know, public schools, the traditional school system, right? I've studied mm -hmm. the D school at Stanford. You know, I've, I've looked at their designs. I've read their stuff. I've gotten into it. And I've oftentimes tried to apply that, you know, to a K-12 school, and I have a difficult time doing so. As you think about it, you know, and we don't have to get too far deep into it, but as you think about it, what could you envision for design thinking in a traditional school system? Yeah, it's a really great question. And, you know, the, the tricky balance here is, which we talked about a little before, is kids will mm -hmm. quit stuff yeah. before they know that they're good at them. Mm. Right? My daughter wanted to quit basketball after about seven minutes of the first practice, <laughs> you know, but she wasn't good at it. And why should I do something I'm not good at? And, you know, the real answer we all know with adulthood is you can't get good at something in 10 minutes. It takes yeah. time and effort. And the tricky part is you, you can't really know for quite some time. I was terrible at speed skating the first time I skated. I got lapped in a three lap race by every other kid. So by all rights, I should have quit then. But of course, my parents wouldn't let me. And so, you know, with time and perseverance, you start to learn what you're good at and what you're not. I, I feel like one of the things that K through 12 teachers can be doing is constantly helping those kids to start understanding where their na native skills are and, and, hmm. and less so where they're not. But, you know, encouraging them to keep trying new things until they, they sort of anchor to one or two or three or five or whatever it is that start to really become their platform for success in the future. I, I do think this one size fits all approach that mm. all kids should be good at everything. It's just never going to work, right? There are yeah. some kids that are broad based, you know, good at most things, but lots of kids have little superpowers that get brushed under the rug because they yeah. have weaknesses in another area that never allows those strengths to shine. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Mike Dunn and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to the show. John, this has been so great talking with you today. As we wind things down, who do you want to give a shout out to? I'm going to give a shout out to my favorite neuroscientist, David Eagleman, who uh, warmly welcomed my RV into his front yard a few months ago <laughs> and uh, spent a couple hours with me talking uh, the neuroscience of time perception. So super grateful for that and all the other conversations we've had. <laughs> 
Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? I would like to say that anybody that's interested in learning more on helping me with my mission to fight time poverty. Mm. So what is time poverty? Time poverty is the uh, inability for some humans to trade their money for time. Lots of people trade their time for money, but there's like a U-shaped curve here. If you don't have much money, well, you have to trade your time for it. If you have lots of money, you also tend to trade your time for money rather than the middle where we learn to balance our access to money and trade it for time in whatever forms are most meaningful. So look me up at John K. Coyle and uh, help me on that mission. Cool. Thanks, John. You brought it in so many different ways in our conversation. I really appreciate that. You sharing your experiences and helping us dive deep. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep. EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.